Welcome to The Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to The Drummer's Pathway podcast. On this episode, my guest is Stephen Taylor. Based out of Nashville, Stephen is a respected drummer and educator. He is also the founder and owner of StephensDrumshed.com, as well as the creator of the Drum Better Daily System and the Drum Show podcast. He is known for not only his motivational skills as an educator, but also for his passion and commitment to teaching his students the art of developing successful practice strategies. We talk about the concept and value of using deliberate practice in your learning process and why it's essential to develop positive habits for success. We also talk about the challenges of staying motivated while prioritizing and maintaining a positive work-life balance. Let's get started. So, Stephen, it's a pleasure to meet you today. I've been following your career for a number of years now, and I really have a great respect for your dedication and commitment to not only putting out such a high quality level of educational material, but really dedicating your career and your teaching practice to teaching the art of successful learning and successful practice. I was curious about what really sparked your desire to get into education in the first place? Well, first, thanks for the kind works, man. Uh, it's it's good to, to get to talk to you. So I feel like I don't deserve all those kind words. <laughs> yeah, so what sparked me to get into education? Well, that in itself is actually not a very inspiring <laughs> story. Uh, so coming up, you know, I started drumming when I was 14 and started uh, i got my first paid gig when i was 15 playing percussion for a, a christmas dinner theater and then the next year uh, when i was 16 i started doing my first stage show was little shop of horrors and so i kind of became the go-to um uh, hired gun if you will for like high school musicals and uh you know uh, performing arts clubs around there I, I started playing with the mississippi symphony orchestra and all this time i was playing for for free at my church three times a week which i feel is a very very important thing because of how much stage time that gave me and the players that put me around and still to this day, Joseph Britton uh, is is like a father to me. So he's, he was the uh, minister of music and piano player. And unbeknownst to me, he also wrote for all the orchestras around Mississippi Symphony Orchestra, Mobile Symphony Orchestra. And he just kind of like took me by the shoulder and was like, come on, we're going to go play some music. Uh, despite me just drowning at all of those gigs and, and, and um, you know, struggling to keep up. From the get go, I, I wanted to, to be a player. And so when it came time to get into college, I did not want to teach elementary ed education as far as um, music goes. I feel that that's really, really important. I don't feel I'm the world's best with that uh, age group. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have kids that age and I feel I do a decent job with them. Hopefully we'll see, we'll see how much I spend in counseling when they're adults. Right. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm doing my best with those, but as far as like where my, where my gifting was, I didn't feel like that was it. And I didn't want to teach high school band. And so it was kind of like, you know, I wanted to be a player 
So I went into uh, jazz studies, which that's also a very uninspiring thing. <laughs> I picked that. I just asked the, uh, uh, they give you somebody uh, to, to help you kind of sort through the classes and all that stuff. I forget what they call them. Um, uh, and I said, what, what can I do that I'm not in marching band or concert band in the off season? <laughs> and she goes, um, jazz studies. I said, bingo, I'm a jazz studies major. So, um, so yeah, I got into jazz studies and then at age 19, after three semesters dropped down and went and started playing on Bourbon street full-time, I got a gig there. My drum teacher, Jeff Mills called me and, and, um, I auditioned and, and got a full-time, we were playing six nights a week there at John Wayner's famous door. So all of that to say, I didn't come up with any goal to be a teacher. Um, I, I did start taking on a couple of private students that people asked and I was, you know, poor college kid. I'm like, sure, I'll show him some drum stuff. And funny enough, I called him recently to about maybe subbing a gig for me. He's still playing, got his own band, um, uh, fantastic guy down in Mississippi. And so I never really wanted to get into teaching because I, I just, the band program for me as a drum set player, was it kind of uh, where I wanted to go. And that seemed to be where all the teachers were. And so um, it was when I moved to Nashville and my wife was a teacher. She was a elementary school teacher at the time. And now she's, she's homeschooled our kids for the past, I think, 10 years, something like that. So I, uh, I got here and I was, you know, the musical landscape has changed over the past 15 years, 20 years, drastically, you know. And when I moved to Nashville about 16 years ago, 17 years ago, you had a lot of session players where the sessions were being it was different. They were being done remotely. There were a lot more players. You could work with somebody in Wisconsin or California and be in Nashville and, you know, uh, do remote sessions. So a lot of session players, the session work was uh, beginning to dry up. And that was what I, I grew up, you know, idolizing um, Eddie Bears and uh, Paul Lyme and, you know, um, uh, the, the Funk Brothers and, and all the Motown recordings and Stax records, all those, you know, those great session players, Steve Gadd. I mean, we could go on and on. And so I came here thinking, well, that was a route that I wanted to go. And I started doing some sessions, some jingles and some demo sessions. Um, and I just started talking to the players and I was talking to guys that were getting retirement uh, from the union here in Nashville, because they'd done so many sessions over the years. And they're just like, man, it's, it's really different. And so, uh, they were looking to get on the road to get some work. The guys that have, and ladies that had been on the road were looking to come home because they were tired of being on the road after so many years. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of looked at it and I thought, I don't know, this seems like everything has changed. I had one particularly bad gig. I was taking any gig I could. My uh, Kelly was pregnant and um i was just taking any gig i could whether it paid thirty dollars or four hundred dollars didn't matter you know some you'd be playing in front of twenty thousand people and then you're playing in front of five people um and it was just huge drastic swings some months were more than enough some months were like should i go work at mcdonald's and and that's kind of, it's kind of feast or famine a lot of times uh with that with the type of sub work i was doing and i came home after one particularly bad gig and i just told Kelly, I said, I'm, you know, tired and I'm way too young to be tired. Like I'm 25. I should not be tired. <laughs> I should be. And I was just it, the stress of trying to figure out how all that worked in this new landscape that was moving to a digital format and roles were being moved around. And, um, uh, so I said, I think I just need to take some time off, get a nine to five, maybe something with benefits. 
and go from there. And, you know, the first thing she said was, are you feeling okay? You know, she's, she met me or she saw me at my very, the very first paid gig I got uh, doing a dinner theater, that dinner theater when I was 15. That's the first time she saw me. So uh, I joked that I found my career and my wife in the same night, um, or she found me. Let's look, I'm batting way out of my league here. That was the Christmas gig I've heard you talk about before. So it it very much was. So she saw you dressed up as a reindeer. And and playing the I wasn't going to bring that up, Michael. <laughs> yeah, she saw me. Uh, I was doing percussion. We were playing uh, Santa Claus. Must have been old Santa Claus, uh, Harry Connick Jr.'s version. Yeah. And um, the Joseph, uh, um, you know, I think he thought it would be really funny and um, to have me stand up and dance in reindeer antlers and a and a Rudolph nose and play the sleigh bells. And me as a 15 year old punk rocker thought that would not be cool. Uh, but they were paying me, so they won. And, um, so yeah, I stood up and was dancing around probably the lamest dance you've ever seen. And, um, that was the first time she saw me and she turned to her brother and said, who was that drummer? And, uh, so I feel like I have nowhere to go, but up, if yes. that was kind of yes. where I hooked her, I'm like, I don't know what I did, but may- anything I do is better than that. moment. <laughs> So yeah, um, I took off, I got my personal trainer's license and began doing some personal training to take the pressure off of music. And she had said, do you want to get back into music? And I said, I don't know. This, this new thing, YouTube is around, you know, there's really, there there were a couple of people on there. There uh, one in particular that was uh, teaching drum lessons. Nobody had, you know, there was no monetization of this, you know, there was no streaming lessons. It was just kind of like, Everybody's wondering what this YouTube is and what we can do with it. And I told her, I said, you know, maybe somebody would want some lessons online or something. I don't know, but I've got, I know I have to figure this thing out. I mean, I just bought my first computer at that time. I was, look, I was poor for a long time and I just, you know, splurged and bought this computer. And I'm like, maybe, you know, there's some options here, but I don't know. And so um, I took some pressure off of it to, to, you know, provide for the family and um, got out of playing music and began looking at different options. I started a, a, a defunct clothing line at the time and started selling some things online and got a people to people to buy those things. And I was like, okay, well this, you know, people, this is a cool thing. I uh, got into an original rock band, uh, Lovers and Liars. We wound up getting signed uh, by Universal Records. So I guess quitting music didn't really work very well, but um, I guess kind of bad at quitting. I've often found that sometimes when you decide to take a step back, the best opportunities present themselves, but you get so yeah. caught into all of the things that you feel like you're supposed to be doing that you just keep, you know, slugging your way through and you're filling the calendar and you're doing everything that mentally you think this is what I've been told for years that I'm supposed to do. How mm-hmm. come I'm tired and how come I'm not loving this? So I know for yeah. myself, there is a point a few years back where I kind of had to take a step back because my calendar was fairly full, but I wasn't getting excited about going to do the work that was filling the Mm -hmm. calendar. So, and through that, by taking a step back, I kind of rediscovered my passion because I suddenly was able to embrace other aspects of my life. And I appreciate the fact that you've gone through a lot of these similar sorts of things. So sometimes taking a step back actually brought you back towards music. Yeah. And I think that sometimes we always, we always, humans in general, we look at things just in the negative light. I don't know why we do that. I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe I'll, 
you know, maybe when I uh, pass away, that'll be the first thing I ask God is like, why did you make us the way you made us here? Like, come on. But our tendency is always to look at the negative side of it. You know, if we have a practice session. It's always to remember the bad things we did. If we, if we have a bad, if we have a gig, you remember the mistakes you made and not the great moments. And I don't know why we're wired like that. Um, but a lot of times we, we paint things in a negative light. And I, t- I was just talking to a student the other day about this. They were, they were injured. They had gone through surgery. And I said, this is a great opportunity. You know, I had to reframe that for myself. Whenever I got injured, I, I sliced my thumb, uh, my finger. I've ha- and I've done several other injuries and I would reframe it and go, well, this is a great opportunity for me to work on my left hand. This is a great opportunity for me to work on independence between my right foot and my left hand. This is, you know, try to reframe those things. If I can't play the drum set, well, this is a great opportunity for me to, to work on some critical listening skills or to catch up on my reading that. I- so I've, I've, really tried to begin reframing things in my life. And I think whenever we think about quitting something, it's, that's a negative word. But mm-hmm. to me, you know, quitting smoking is pretty positive. You know, it's like, why don't we call it like starting life? I don't know. You know, why don't we, let's call it something else. So a lot of times we just have to clear the schedule to give life enough time to send us some other things, to have some other options, to get some breathing room so that we can look and go, okay, well, I could do this or I could do this. And turns out becoming a personal trainer, I've always been interested in fitness and becoming a personal trainer really helped me as a teacher, really helped me as a coach. I got up to where I was doing about 55 sessions a week. Um, whatever I do, I usually go pretty hard at it. And that's a, that's a very full schedule for a trainer. Um, sometimes 15 sessions a day, uh, they're very long days. And, um, but I was learning how to coach people. I was learning how to encourage them. I was learning like, oh no, if I weigh this person at the end of the session, they go home depressed for the whole weekend. And then they come back and we're at square one or even heavier, a couple pounds. So I learned I need to weigh this person at the front of the session. That way I have enough time to build them up before they leave mm-hmm. so that they can, you know, there were, there were little things that I was learning that I really wasn't aware of the pacing of a session and, and the, the banter back and forth, getting to know someone, all those things really matter when you're teaching anyone, anything. And so, um, I started, um, uh, uh I started a blog at first, back to your question. I started a blog um, that's still somewhere out there um, where I just, I was interviewing drummers. I was, you know, my thoughts on drumming, whatever, you know, probably it's not great. Um, <laughs> it's still there, but it's not great. But it was, it's great that it was the, it was the start of me thinking outside of the box. I began writing my first method book, which is uh, functioning in time uh, on permutations and combinations, which the, the book by um, David Garibaldi uh, future sounds just, he had like two or three pages on permutations and it just like flipped my brain open. I'm like, whoa, I got it. You know, I went wide open on it. Um, and so I started teaching some on video in my garage and I would bring in, um, a change of clothes in the summer because I would sweat through everything in the winter. I would turn on my professional video lights that were from Lowe's, um, to heat the room up and, you know, had this, really awkward camera angle that was like over my shoulder. So I'm turning around. I don't know. It was really bad, but I just, I was like, you know, I want to figure this thing out. And I started looking at YouTube and I said, I could do a drum cover channel. Um, but I don't think that that would be a a viable thing to build anything off of as far as a business or something to support my family. Um, because I'm very much about teaching people. 
and tons of free content, but at some point, you know, we got to keep the lights on. Mm -hmm. And so how do I eventually turn this to where I can, you know, do it, um, you know, full time. And so I, I had friends that were doing drum cover channels. It was very hard to monetize those, even just in YouTube ads. So I said, I think I'm going to do the teaching thing. And I began teaching and, um, and so I, I, um, I feel like I'm a much more of a traditional teacher in that I came up on, uh, you know, Alan Dawson's teachings and I came up on, um, uh, future sounds and, um, Gary Chester, Gary Shafee, the new breed, like all of these very stick control, all these very traditional methods. I, I've begun to incorporate them. Um, and, and I didn't come up in the YouTube era where we were, uh, playing as many notes as we could, as fast as we could. Uh, I really came up with like, no, if you don't play pocket, they're probably going to fire you. Um, and, and there's lots of room for lots of notes when, when they're called for. So we should be able to do that, uh, when they're called for, but we should know, you know, when to use them. And that was kind of my start with teaching. And I grew up uh, with a father that was a pastor and my mother was a minister of music. And, um, so I watched my, and my dad still to this day is one of the best public speakers I've ever seen. Uh, he was also, uh, one of the, the most incredible, uh, debaters that I've ever seen. And he could tell a story that would have you just hanging on a pin, you know? And I feel like sleeping under pews and just hearing, you know, of course, when I'm a kid, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to hear him talk one more time, you know, but growing up, I'm like, man, I didn't even know it. And I was getting the best education as a public speaker that I ever could have. And I remember listening to him talk about it, maybe a story that he delivered and, and talking about, I, I really didn't deliver it well. It didn't go over very well. I feel like I could, you know, rearrange the elements and tell that story better to more effectively illustrate a point that I was making. And just hearing those things and how much he cared about people and the whole point of his, uh, of how he delivered things was so that people could get it and so they could understand, um, you know, I think all of that has gone into, um, me becoming a teacher, uh, the teacher I am, I guess, whatever, whatever that is. Um, and I was talking to somebody the other day, I said, you know, the, the amount it takes to show someone you care versus show someone you don't care is like, it's so little, you know, it's so little. I was talking to a student cause I'm this year, I, I picked up a touring gig last year with the steel woods. And so it has me on a lot. And it's fun because at almost every city I have students come out and I have dinner with them. I have coffee with them. I go have a beer with them. And one of them said, this is crazy. You've got a show. You did sound check. Like, how can you make the time to manage all of your students and come have dinner with me? And I said, how could I not make the time? I said, you drove two hours to just have dinner with me. You're not even going to be able to stay for the show because you've got to go back. And I'm not going to step off and have an hour mm -hmm. to spend with you. Like, what kind of a jerk am I, you know, uh, I, I don't have the time not to have dinner with, with people. And so I think that, you know, um, as teachers, it, it really, it really behooves us to, to just as much as we can show that we care with students. Um, but that's kind of how I got started teaching. And then it just snowballed. And I was, I, I started live streaming a couple years after I, uh, started the YouTube channel and, that was during the time when it cost a lot of money. It wasn't cheap. It was like three, three fifty a, a month just to have the privilege to live stream and all the gear you had to get. Uh, it was pretty incredible as far as the amount you had to invest to do it. And now you can just I can pick up this phone and be streaming with you, you know. Um, so uh, at the time, I was I was teaching three times a day, three days a week, 
streaming the lessons and I would teach the same lesson three times a day so that different people could catch it. I don't do that anymore. I'm a little smarter about how I do it. Uh, but I mean, I did that for like four or five years and not a ton of students enough that I could float the boat and, and, uh, um, keep the business open. I opened it in 2011, in October 2011, and in the middle of 2015, I, I was able to take it full time, which was kind of a big deal for me. And up until that point, I was still training that much. I would come home on my lunch breaks. I would come home at night and and just really work this thing and put in the reps. But what happened was those thousands of hours of live streaming over and over and reassessing how I taught it. And, you know, there's three people on and I'm still just teaching and trying to get it right. And, you know, I guess, I guess finally, you know, I, I banged my head into a stone enough that I got a little blood and, you know, was able to, to get better at teaching. Um, and then as, as we've, as we've gone, as, as you and I have spoken briefly about, I got very, very interested in how students structure their practice how, um, um, how we learn as a, as humans, how the brain works that became almost a side passion for me is, is learning how we learn. Uh, and then, you know, now I I'm morphing into this. I don't know that I teach drums. I think I, I teach people how to have a better life through, through music and the drums. That's what we're seeing with, we started having drum camps this past year and it's, it's just, uh, the, the difference it makes in people's lives, that's been, it's been like, oh, this isn't just about drums. This is about something, you know, bigger than even that. And so I think always having those different realizations uh, and being open to them maybe helps make us a, a better communicator and a teacher. For a number of years, I actually had a job teaching part-time at a local college. I was teaching website development and photo editing. And I would find after I would teach a lesson, I would come home and I would analyze how the lesson went. And if something didn't go well, or if, if a student was not able to really access the information the way that I presented it, I would analyze what I did and I wouldn't put it back on the student. Mm -hmm. And I would go in the next time and I would take a different approach. Because even though sometimes my classes might have 15 students in them, what I realized is a class of 15 students can have 12 different learning styles and you mm -hmm. really have one chance to reach everyone one way who are going to learn in 12 different things. And so at that point, I started to really get interested in sort of the, the mental aspect, both in teaching and in learning as a student. I've been a drummer for 40 years. I've often said that I learned how to actually practice 10 years ago, even okay. though I am 30 years out of college, because what I would find is that people would present you with the information, but they wouldn't tell you how to absorb the information. They would just give you more information. And that's one of the things I think you do exceptionally well, is it's not just here's the information. It's about how to absorb, how to practice, and really getting over those hurdles. Because I have found that with my own students, if someone's not getting a concept, it's because I haven't taught them how to learn the concept. I've mm -hmm. provided them with the con, I've provided them with the information, but I haven't provided them with how to learn that concept. And I often find some of my most successful lessons, we don't actually play a note. We just spend an hour chatting about how to overcome that mindset component. And I think it's really important that as teachers, and I know that you 
totally follow this concept. I think it's really important as teachers that we learn how to figure out how a student learns and adapt to them. I'm not always a big fan of curriculum learning, but what I mean by that is that sometimes curriculum learning automatically assumes everyone learns the same way. I'm a fan of having a, a curriculum, having a method and knowing how to overcome challenges, but really learning to adapt to what an individual needs to find the right method that works for them. Because some students want to play for fun. Well, all students want to play for fun, except for sometimes you know, when they're really young, they're there because their parents want a half hour break. So, so the, the, the kind <laughs> of the glorified babysitter. Yeah. But everyone wants this to be fun. Some people want to play in bands. Some people want to take this further, but most people aren't always looking for a professional career. They're looking to get better at becoming a musician and they want someone to not only give them the tools, but to really cheerleader them and inspire them to get over those steps. And, and cheerlead, I don't mean necessarily telling them that they're doing a great job all the time, but you have to inspire them and let them know when they've reached and achieved those goals and not be afraid to challenge them. So I would really be interested in some of your approaches for when you're dealing with students or how you overcome some specific challenges that occur. Yeah. Um, I think it was John Wooden, Wooden, the um, great basketball coach, and, and I'm paraphrasing, um, but uh, kind of what you were talking about uh, as a teacher, I have not taught. A lot, of, a lot of teachers feel like they go home during the day and they say, I taught classes today. And my question is, did they learn? Because as a teacher, we haven't taught until the student has learned it. Mm -hmm. And so if the student is having trouble with it, it is not the student's fault. And it's not always the teacher's fault necessarily, although the teacher needs to take the responsibility to figure it out. It is the teacher needing to understand how that person learns and how we can present the information so that they can get it. And I think that sometimes we make learning so hard, you know, it's like this hard space. We've got to study this material, we'll really learn it. It's like, it's not that hard. I learn stuff every day. I mean, I learn, my, my daughter learns, you know, I can show her three, thing, three times how to, you know, open this particular door or latch and she'll have it, you know. It's like we're constantly learning. We're taking in information about our surroundings. If you meet a new person, you're constantly assessing them and learning about them and how to communicate with them. Like we, we our brains are information-seeking computers, you know. They want more information and they want to know, they want to catalog it and they want to know where they can find it and they want to be able to automate it things uh, that, that, that is what our brain seeks to do and it makes us more effective humans so for me as a teacher I really want to understand the student understand for me it starts with understanding why they're playing the drums and I don't know that a lot of students spend enough time figuring that out um, and that's one of the first things that I that I ask is you know why are you playing the drums because I want to keep your curriculum that I designed for you in line with why you are, you know, learning the drums. In my online drum school, I have something called a gold generator. And if they want a lesson plan from me, which I will give to everybody that signs up, but you have to send that to me. And it asks questions like, how does your family feel about you playing the drums? 
you know, how many hours a week do you have to practice? Why are you, what do you want to do with this? It, it, and a lot of people don't understand why I'm asking those questions, but it really helps me understand you better and how, how I need to approach you and those types of things. And so, you know, I, I think that as teachers, we just need to spend more time understanding each student. And that's, you know, we homeschool our kids, my wife does, and each one of them is different. They're so different in how they absorb information and you can present it just a little different and all of a sudden it clicks and they don't have to struggle at all. They immediately know it. They're like, oh no, I get it. And it's like, ah, huh. Well, I was doing that wrong all the time. (laughs) You know, I was trying to teach them wrong. So beyond just understanding how the student learns, I approach every problem as an isolated incident instead of, I can't play this exercise. I just don't keep time well. I can't play this song. It's, these are things that I hear all the time. You know, well, I just can't play this song. I don't play drum fills well. I, you know, I have bad timing. They, it's this big ball of tangled yarn that they come and dump. And they say, I don't have good timing. You know, and it's like, uh, I don't believe that. I've heard you have good timing. Nope, I don't. I don't. I just don't have. And I'm like, okay, well, let's dig into it. So we start pulling threads. And it's like, okay. Can you play to this metronome? Can you do this? Can you do this? And we start pulling threads. I had a student come in and she said, I just can't play drum fills. And I said, I don't believe that. She said, no, I can't do it. Can't play drum fills. I said, okay, well then sit down. So we started going through and I had her play a simple eighth note drum fill. She did it great. Okay, let's play a 16th note drum fill. Okay, now mimic this drum fill that I did. She was playing drum fills great. And I said, you're great at drum fills. Well, no, when I go to do this, and there it was. It was one issue. Yeah. There was one little thing that she had problems with. Another one came in and she said, she said, I just can't play this song. And we had been doing a drum camp that week. And I said, uh, I said, well, I, I don't believe that I've heard you play all week. And the beats in this song or some of the exercises we were playing and some of the drum fills are no harder than some of the hand and foot stuff we've been doing. So I don't believe that you can't play it. Well, believe it because I can't play it. I said, oh, okay. So we start going through it. And we start, she's playing the verse, fine, she's playing it. Turns out we had trouble with one or two transitions, what I call transitions. The transition is when we go from a verse to a chorus. Maybe we're doing a drum fill. Maybe there's no drum fill. It's when we go from the hi-hat to the ride cymbal. It's when we go from one section to another. These are transitional moments. It's like going through a doorway where we, we want to, uh, I joke, oil the hinges. We don't want squeaky doors that wake the whole family up at 3 a.m., right? We want to be able to sneak around the house and not have anybody notice. And so when it comes to those transitions, those give students a lot of problems because oftentimes they've practiced drum beats they've practiced hand and foot coordination drum fills um rudiments all of those things separately but they didn't put them together and because they didn't put them together and go ahead and believe me because i've had enough embarrassing moments on stage where i did this um i have crash bands because they didn't put those two elements together they try to do them together and they didn't tackle the third skill. They could play the first skill, drum beat one. They could play the second skill, drum beat two. They could play the third skill, drum fill. But they didn't do the fourth thing. And that fourth thing was, can you play them all together? Drum beat one, drum fill, drum beat two. Can we do that sequence? And so I think as a teacher, it, it really, I spend a lot of time trying to uh, zoom in on what the actual problem is. And many times the actual problem that they're having is, oh, you have trouble raising your hi-hat on the upbeats when you're playing a drum beat. This is a systemic issue. And they say, yeah, every time it comes up, it derails me. 
Okay, well then we need to practice that. And once we practice that, these five songs will work themselves out because we, we practice that skill that is now systemic. And if we can isolate that skill within the system of your drumming, fix it, and then reinsert it back into the system, the system works better, right? Um, so for me as a teacher, that is how I'm approaching a lot of, of my teaching is trying to narrow down what is the exact problem that we have and then how can we tackle that exact problem and then put it back into our playing so that it makes all of the playing better? Because if you're working on raising hi-hat on the upbeat of four, it doesn't just help that one song. Mm -hmm. It helps all the songs where you got to raise the hi-hat on four, on the upbeat of four, right? That's one of the things that, one of the ways that I would dig in with a student and, and try to isolate those things. You take the different elements, you, you master the different elements, and then you learn how to kind of piece them together. I, I don't, well, I always like to teach students just here's a beat. Here's a, I, I like to teach them things in phrases because mm. I think that's one of the things that I notice a lot with students is that they understand parts, but they don't always understand the phrases. They'll get to the fill and then they play the fill and then they stop and then they go back to the beat because they don't understand that the fill is actually part of the groove. The time doesn't mm. actually stop. And so I try and get them to go through and loop things. And the opposite of this is that, and, and I, I know you do this as well, that sometimes they'll come in this as a say, I, I can't play this song. And I know for myself, when I had to learn songs, I would play along with the song. I'd get to that part that was a challenge. I would get frustrated. I would go back to the beginning and I would play along with the song again, get back to that part get frustrated, go back to the beginning. And, and I started to realize this is ridiculous because I can play the first two and a half minutes fine. There are two measures that are a challenge. So why am I spending 80% of my time reviewing the things that make sense when I can spend five minutes, repeat the two measures and then piece them together? Yeah, that's, I, I, I had this conversation with my students all the time and it is, you know, when you're learning that song, if you take a piano player, classical piano player, uh, and you watch how they learn a song, they've already heard the song. So in their ear, they know what that sounds like. Mm -hmm. And when they go to learn the piece, you will not, at least the ones that I've watched that really know how to ingest this material, not just piano players, you can violins, whatever. They go to the first note. And they're like, okay, what? they don't try to play the first verse or the first section or the first movement. They go, what's this first note? Okay, so my hand's starting there. And then they move on to those second, and they're working on the first beat of the first measure. And then they go to the second beat and the third beat, and then they loop them, and then they move on. And they're systematically, they're not trying to run the whole piece, you know? And so by the, by the week of concert, they may have the last section to learn still, but they know that section is just a, re, a repeat of you know it's 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 uh reframing the mm -hmm. the melody or 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 um story or whatever it is whatever you want to call it um within the within the song and so they know that this is you know i already know this i just take this section and plug it in here because i've already looked at it um, but when they're learning they don't try to play the whole song they may attempt to once or twice a week play the whole section they learned but if they have problems they mark those and they only isolate those so a lot of my, when I'm learning songs, after we get off this, I have two songs I need to brush up on. I already know them, but I'm not going to run the whole song 15 times if there's one section that's really kicking my butt. Like, mm -hmm. Just run the one section. And oftentimes I'll listen to songs and learn the form in my head because I've been doing this a long time. 
and I don't have to practice it because it's like, okay, I mean, I can do all of these things. I just put them together and usually I'll play through it a few times just to make sure everything's sitting properly. But, um, you know, I, I think that having the maturity to be able to step back, but that's the difference between jamming, which is what we all want to do. Come on. We all want to jam, uh, versus the learning, the, the deliberate practice, the, you know, the 10,000 hours really getting in there thinking about, because that's hard. That's the hard stuff. That's, you know, I guess, I guess, you could call it hard. It takes more work. You're tired after it. You know, a lot of times after jamming, I'm very inspired, but after a deliberate practice session, I get up and I'm like, if I have to play that section one more time, I'm going to throw up, you know, like I've been working on it for two hours. I still can't do it, you know, and I leave and, and allow my brain to continue, you know, learning and processing the information. So I think it's a, it's a, a huge, um, issue with with people trying to learn songs is in just you know you don't that's the age-old thing how do you eat an elephant although i'd never have really met people that eat elephants regularly <laughs> yeah. i think there's a bit like how do you eat a cow i think yeah. that'd be a better one um uh you know you don't eat the whole you eat it one bite at a time it's like you know you, you can't take the whole thing in at once what i used to do when I would practice is that I would take about eight different drum books off my shelf that I really wanted to get through. And I would assign myself, you know, two or three pages for each book. And I would want to go through and say, okay, I got an hour every day to practice. And at the end, and I would try and get through everything. And then at the end of the week, I got almost nowhere. Mm -hmm. Now the way okay. I practice is I, I might still have four or five method books that I'm working on. I practice for, 15 minutes to half an hour every single day and i break things down into two or three lines and mm -hmm. my goal is to i am going to do these two or three lines and i do them for three or four minutes and they're better than they were the day before and it feels really good and then i stop mm -hmm. and i move on to something else because then i'm really excited to get back to the other things that i was working on so practice before used to be a chore and now it is a joy and I get energized. And when I walk out of the practice room, I am so excited to come back because when you take things and break them into smaller pieces, you see the successes. Mm -hmm. When you add everything, you just get tumbled underneath this vast amount of information and it gets overwhelming and you never want to walk away from your practice, not wanting to go back. And I think yeah. too many times people are always taught you need to practice an hour a day. Okay. Well, they don't tell you how to practice and how to structure your practice. Mm -hmm. And, and so I often have parents will say to me, how long, you know, should my kid practice day an hour a day? And I said, well, you're, you're going to think this is strange, but I think they should practice for 10 to 15 minutes but do exactly what I gave them to do. After that, they can do whatever they want. But in that 10 to 15 minutes, here's the exercise I need them to do, then let them have some fun. Yeah, you know, with, with learning, the, um, the first thing I wanna instill in them is the habit of practice. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not drumming. It's I want you to start a new habit, and new habits can be a little bit honorary to get into our and to get into our um, daily routine. And so, although if we can set the habit, once we have it, it's an automatic thing and it becomes a reward system. And, um, and so for, for, I had someone email in a couple of weeks ago been a student of mine for a while and they were very disheartened. They'd, you know, life, life had happened. Just a lot of things and work and I got kids. I'm tired when I get home. I can't practice on and on and on. And, on. and so I said, this is going to sound weird. I said, but I don't want you trying to practice an hour a day. I want you to practice 
15 minutes. And I said, I don't want you to practice any more than 15 minutes. Matter of fact, when 15 minutes, when the bell dings, you better get up. Don't do anything else. And I said, I want you to pick one thing, not one thing a day. I want you to pick the same thing that every day you're coming back to it. I said, it can be a song. It can be one of the lesson tracks that we call them lesson tracks or choruses in our members area uh, that you've been working on. But I want you to pick one of them. And I want you to set aside a time every day. And let's make it a triggered time. So whenever we need to make a new habit, uh, the best way to do this is to have some type of cue that cues that the habit is to start. And so uh, let's take uh, smokers, for instance. I'm not picking on them, but uh, I just had lunch. And after lunch, I always have a cigarette. The cue is lunch is over. And now my body's like, it's time for the cigarette. The reward is that you ingest the nicotine, but really the reward begins to be your anticipation of the event that's about to happen. And they found that the pleasure parts of the brain begin to spark up long before you light up that cigarette because you're actually anticipating how great it's gonna be once lunch is over and we're able to have that smoke. And it goes not just with cigarettes, it goes with desserts, it goes with everything. Uh, and so um, if we can trigger our practice time by attaching it to something else that we do every day, uh, they found that if you keep the trigger, the cue, the same, and the reward, the same, you can actually put whatever you want to in the middle. You can replace the habit if you keep this trigger reward system in place. So instead of smoking a cigarette, we could say this would be an example. Instead of smoking a cigarette, I would say, okay, well, why don't you say every day after lunch, I'm going to practice the drums for 15 minutes. You finish your lunch, you walk in there, that's the cue. I'm done with my lunch, time to practice the drums. I go in there and I practice. The reason we start with very short amounts of time is because I'm not concerned about you learning the drums. I'm concerned about you developing the habit of being a drummer. And to do that, we need to, we do need to spend time with our instrument. I want to act like a drummer. Uh, and we really need to start with what is the overall change in my person that I want to see? What kind of person am I trying to become? Uh, and, and once we see that, then we want to take the steps to get there. And so if we have that trigger, that cue of every afternoon after I finish my coffee, I'm going to go. Every afternoon after I put my daughter to bed, I'm going to go. So we have that trigger. And then we can put some type of reward at the end of that. Now, the reward can be whatever you want it to be. The reward can, I'm big on daily wins with my students, like what you were just talking about. And I said, you need to keep a win logbook. And you need to, you need, what was your win for the day? I showed up to practice. I'm playing exercise number three a little bit better. I increased five BPMs. My right hand's looking at what's your win? Put it down in the journal. And the next day when you come in, read two or three of those. So that every time your little brain starts to go, man, I'm not making any progress, you can go back to your win book and you go, nope, made progress every day. I'm going to make progress today too. So your daily win could be the reward. A big reward for a lot of people would be playing their favorite songs or maybe, uh, maybe um, uh, jamming for a little while. Uh, playing whatever they wanted to. So we have the cue. We just got done with lunch, cued us to practice. We've made it short enough amount of time that it's not a big obstacle. We do the 15 minutes and then we have our reward. And honestly, a reward for me would be like, I don't get my afternoon coffee until I finish this dead gun practice session. And that would be kind of a reward for me. I mark down my win, I go get my coffee. And so now we've set up a very doable system that if we can, if we can repeat that, it becomes an automated thing and our brain starts to expect every day after lunch, hey, we're supposed to go practice. And you start looking forward to while you're eating lunch, got to get done with this so I can go practice. Because your brain is looking forward to the reward that you're going to give it after practice or the reward it gets from that practice. And so with this person, uh, with the student, it was my, my goal was to instill the habit in them.
and they emailed me a couple weeks later. They said, I've been doing just like you said. I've been, I've been plugging in every day, 15 minutes, doing the same thing. And they said, man, I feel so much better about where I am. I'm excited about the girl. I said, see, that's how we get there. Um, I'm convinced that consistency is the key to the world. Um, you know, it's like water, you know, water is such a unassuming thing. It's just in this bottle. And we think what kind of power does water have? But man, Mm -hmm. water, if you let it drip on something for millions of years, (laughs) it's, it's really powerful, right? Even if you let it, if you sit there and let it drip on your skin all day, you'll start to get sores. Why? Because it's the repeated consistent uh, interaction that's happening. And with our practice time, it has to be consistent. We have to be able to show up and do the work and then leave and not be the, the practice space is not, I don't want a ton of emotions in my practice space. I don't want to have a ton of feelings about my practice. I just want to show up and do it. You know, I want to show up and, 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 and practice and, you know, as, as much as I can remove my emotional self out of it and get the work done, uh, and have, you know, have fun. If I have any emotion, I want to have fun while I'm doing it. Um, and then obviously critically assessing how it's going, like all these skills come with time, but with students, the first thing I want to do is get the habit there. I want them to show up. I want them to enjoy it. I want to hook them on the drums. That's why I'm not a very traditional teacher when it comes to, I don't lead with technique in the rudiments. Um, I just don't believe it's the best way to do it. I've, I've never hooked a student by saying, today we're going to work on paradiddles. They're like, uh, I thought we were going to jam on Black Flag, you know? Yeah. Like they're, they're looking to play ACDC. So I find out what music they're interested in. And that first session, I'm trying to work towards a song because I want to give them that win. Because going from not playing music to playing music is a huge leap that is possible in one lesson. It is possible in one lesson to do that. We can take a student that cannot play a song, and if we do it correctly, by the end of that session, they will have been able to play along with that song, and the light that comes on in their eyes is like, I did it! And it's like, yeah, you did. Wasn't too hard. Can't, can't wait till the next time, right? Once we have them hooked, then they start going, man, I'm having trouble speeding up. Oh, that's a technique issue. I can help you with that if you want. Then we, then we let the playing lead lead them to the water, if you will. We let the problems begin to expose. Oh, that's why we need to work on that. Oh, I'm having trouble lifting. You know, one of them that I give my students is Billie Jean, and I give it early on. The number of emails I have with, I can play that whole song except for that hi-hat lift. And I'm like, you caught me. That's why I wanted the hi-hat lift in there was because I wanted to have a sense of accomplishment, but I wanted there to be one or two things where they're like, I can't do that. Well, you're right. You can't do that. Let's work on it because you're going to be lifting the hi-hat a lot. And so I try to let the lessons lead the player to, this is why we need to work on technique. This is why we need to do this thing, which is not a very traditional way to do it. And I understand that. And I've, I've caught some flack for that from, from some other people. Uh, and, and it's okay. It's okay. We all have different ways of teaching. I, I think there's value in offering the technical solutions when the problem arises. Because I know in the past I've gone through and I've kind of taught some hand technique things and gave them some fundamental rudiments. And it means nothing to the student until they come in. As you said, they're, they're trying to learn a song and they're having a problem. Then at that point, I won't tell them 
that the problem that they're having happens to be that they can't play paradiddles, I will just help them resolve the problem once they get over that hurdle and they feel mm -hmm. good about themselves and say, hey, just for your own information, you know that thing that you have now succeeded in doing? It happens to be a paradiddle, that thing I introduced you before. Then at that point, they start to become interested because then they start to see the value in the information that you've given to them. I think the problem sometimes that, that teachers struggle with, and I know I have in the past, is introducing the right information at the wrong time mm -hmm. in the wrong way. I had a, a really young student a few years back, and I think he was five or six. And as you said, sometimes that can be a, a bit of a challenge. And I was trying to get him to play some basic beats, and he could, but he had this thing in his head that was saying, I can't do this, I can't do this. And mm -hmm. so no matter what you would try, to, he just couldn't do it. And, and I kept trying to figure out a different way to approach this. And then at one point I kind of asked him, what's your favorite animal? And then he, he listed off, I think it was a cheetah. Okay, so if you play this beat, then the cheetah is going to come over and see you. And I had to pretend I was an animal and I wandered around mm -hmm. the room and he started to laugh and then he started to play the beat because now it was a game. Mm -hmm. Then what I would do is I would try and introduce the next beat, but he's like, oh, it's too hard. I can't do that. And I said, well, if you want the cheetah to, and I stood at the back of the room, I said, if you want the cheetah to come close, you have to add the extra bass drum. Well, I can't do mm -hmm. it. Oh, that's okay. The cheetah will be over here, but now you have the key to get over this. And then he started playing it without thinking because it was fun. And then I got him mm -hmm. in about a half an hour to play material that I had been trying to teach him for about a month before that he couldn't do that. And it turned into a game. The biggest issue was we were doing a recital. And so I had a different animal for everything that he would play. And then, so he mm -hmm. wanted to do a drum solo for his recitals. I had to stand on stage and literally yell out animals to him. And whenever I yell at animal, he would change the beat that he was doing. And mm -hmm. it worked really well, except when I would say, okay, turkey he would stand up and start making turkey noises and so i was quite <laughs> quite concerned that during the recital he was actually going to put the sticks down stand up and making turkey noises but what i found was i had to put myself outside of my comfort zone mm -hmm. and show that i was not afraid to get silly in order to try and bring joy to the student and and for me it was one of the biggest learning experiences as a teacher that i found is that I don't like to sing, but sometimes I have to sing in my lessons in order to get the student mm -hmm. more comfortable. Two things there that you mentioned, I don't want to interrupt you, but yep. I think they're really important. And the first one is that students at different ages are at also just as humans at different levels of development. And so to expect a seven-year-old to do what you're expecting a 12-year-old to do and expect a 12-year-old to to do what you're expecting a 20 year old to do. They're at completely different levels of development as humans. And, you know, even if we just look at the prefrontal cortex, which has to do with um, task management, goal orientation, being able to focus on a task, uh, concentration, all those things, um, they, um, all those cognitive abilities would be what they are called. Um, that doesn't develop until later in kids and in guys. I mean, some would say it doesn't develop until the 30s <laughs> with guys, you know, um, that doesn't develop until even later than than women. And so understanding that helps me understand that if I have a six, seven, eight year old in a lesson, 
it's got to be a game. Yeah. It has to be fun. You have to give them breaks. You can't pound them with information. You can't expect them to come in. I've had so many teachers, I mean, I have this kid come in, he won't sit still for half an hour. He went, I'm like, well, sounds like a, you know, six-year-old. I don't know what you, you know, I look, we've, we've got three kids now and I've given up trying to get them to sit down for dinner. You know, look, my daughter roller skates around the table while we're eating. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know why they do it, but after three kids, I'm like, I don't care. As long as you eat the food, yeah. just it's fine if you want to stand on roller skates. I don't care if you do somersaults while we're eating, whatever. You know, it's madness anyway. Like as a parent, it's like, this is going to be crazy anyway. It's like, well, we need to teach them to be still. It's like, no, you don't because they're a child. And at sometimes they need to be able to sit still, but come on, within reason. A six-year-old's got to, they got to move, right? So I think it's great that you take a child and you're able to see that on their level and, it, and it's really not, uh, it's really getting outside of yourself, but it's kind of uh, reconnecting with our inner child. There's a great book called Free Play. Um, yes. And I cannot remember the name of the author, but there's a great it's term Steve, in there. Stephen something. I actually reread the book last week. So It's fantastic. Yeah. And he talks about galumphing. That's the term I took from that book, G-A-L-U-M-P-H-I-N-G, galumphing. And that is the, I'm paraphrasing, the act of making a task more difficult uh, simply to make it fun or to make it play. And a, a great example of this would be walking down the sidewalk with any child. Any parent knows that walking down the sidewalk with a child is a full contact sport um, or from the parking lot into Walmart. You know, you would think this is a, this is as me as a guy, I'm like, you know, goal is to get that box you know yeah. straight line that's the short that's my and the kids like but we could touch every red car and run around in a circle and then pat ourselves on the head and skip all the way to the door dad and i'm like but it's a straight line and we need to go in there and get that right that's that's the difference that's galumphing it's intent step on a crack break your mother's back uh that that's a that's a game kids play why I don't know. I just want to walk down the sidewalk. You know, they're like dancing around me and on their hands. And I'm like, I don't understand what's going on to them. They have to walk down the street anyway. Why can't it just be fun? You know, why can't it be fun? And I've spent, you know, I spent my whole childhood with, with, uh, adults saying, go play, you know, go play, go, 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 you know, and then you get to be a teenager and start to get into adulthood. And they're like, Hey, stop all that fooling around. You need to get serious, you know? And they take all of my crayons, right? When I'm a kid, they wanted to give me crayons to keep me occupied. And then you start to grow up and they take your crayons. And I've spent really a lot of my adulthood uh, trying to figure out how to get my crayons back, <laughs> you know, how to get them out of the teacher's desk when she locked them up, you know. Um, and, um, and galumping is one of those things, which is exactly what you did. You intentionally made a task more difficult for you. You made it playful. And kids resonate with that. And they learn a lot through play. Uh, and, and I, and, and I want to commend you for that. That's a huge thing, by the way, uh, to be able to do, to do that. The other thing you did was you put rules around it. Um, and I think that, um, we forget that rules are really important. Um, if you take, and I've given this example a lot of times to students, if you take a ball, that ball is, uh, you know, what we could do with that is somewhat endless. And you wind up with something. I read Calvin and Hobbes when I was a kid, and they had something called Calvin Ball. And Calvin Ball was this insane game that had no rules. You could change the rules, you know, and it just made no sense. And every time you read the comic, you're like, this is the crazy, you know, it made no sense. It was the, it was the 
it was the antithesis of a game uh, because it had no rules. The thing that makes a game, a game is the rules. And the thing that makes a player fantastic at that game is the rules. It's their ability to function within those rules. So if you take a, a ball and you say, okay, you have to put this ball through a net, that's still really not a game. But if you say, okay, you can't touch it, you know, you have to bounce it only with your hands. And if you're moving, you have to bounce the ball. This sounds like an insane Calvin ball thing. You can't move unless you're bouncing the ball. And if you're not bouncing the ball, you can move one foot, but you can't move the back foot. And you have to shoot it into the goal. But you, like, and there's all these rules. That's called basketball. LeBron James is fantastic at basketball, right? Uh, Steph Curry, fantastic at basketball. Two completely different players with different strengths uh, and different body builds. But if you, you, at the same rate, if you say, hey, still got a ball in the net, but this time the net is on the ground instead of on a pole, and now you can't touch it with your hands at all. Only your feet. If you touch it with your hands, it's a penalty. And now we have the game of soccer, which LeBron James probably could be good at, but is not good at. <laughs> but you take somebody like Pele, and he's very good at it, right? And so the thing that makes them great at those sports is the, is the rules themselves and their ability to function within those rules creatively. And so rules are not bad. Rules really give us a place to, uh, a sounding board to jump from. And so you taking and setting some rules of, well, you know, the, the, the leopard won't come over, tiger, whatever, cheetah, a cheetah won't come over unless you play, that's it's a rule. I'll be over here in this corner, but here's the rule. And so uh, it, when we make the game simple like that, it becomes fun. I had a student that, um, I have a lot of students that struggle with this, soloing. And the number of times I've, I've heard people say, I can't solo. And I was like, yes, you can. Nope, I can't do it. I've tried, can't solo. I freak out every time. I said, well, you're doing it right now. They said, well, what are you talking about? I said, I wasn't planning on having this conversation with you. Were you planning on having this conversation with me? Well, no. Well, did you plan out what you were going to say? No, it just kind of came up. Yeah, we're soloing back and forth. I don't know what you're going to say next. It's going to be a surprise, right? My response is going to be a surprise. We got a solo here. So then we start to go, I, I tell them, I say, I can get you soloing in, 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 uh, in, in no time. They said, oh, I don't think so. I say, sure. So once we take away a solo is meant to impress something, someone, once we take that out of the equation, because that's not what a solo is for, a solo is to say something. Okay. And if, it, and I can say something by saying, I'm going to the store. I just said something. I soloed and I said something. So if we take that mindset and onto the drum set, soloing becomes very easy. And if we place a couple of rules around it, really anyone can solo, you know, whenever you start to play some rules and, and, and they said, well, I, I just don't think I could do it. I say, okay, and do you care if I play? Can I play? Yeah, Would go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm sorry. I'm going to, I'm, I'm, the drums are sitting here and I haven't played them all day. I had to put, I was putting together a drum set earlier today. I'm like, I can't play this drum set. I wish I could play this just so now I'm going to play. Um, I'm going to find a reason to play. Let me make it awkward and see if I can get this, uh, overhead camera. Let me see if it's on. Hey, look at that. It's a really bad shot. Um, so we can take and, um, is everything coming through? Okay. For you? Yep. Okay, good. So I told him, I said, look, we can take this and make a couple of rules. And let's say one rule is you can't play anything above an eighth note. They're like, okay. And I said, so now we've taken that. I can't be impressive, really, because I can't play anything above eighth notes, right? And if you play something, you need to repeat it at least two more times. So storyteller's rule of three. Okay. And that's the only two. That's the only two. You know, so then you have them sit there and they go, okay, because they have to start to think. And they go, okay, well, um... Well, let me see. Um, 
so if our quarter notes here, you know, you may have them go, you know. That's a solo. We've just made a phrase, right? And I'll tell them, okay, cool. Well, can you come up with another phrase? I guess. Say, okay, cool. Now, next rule. You have to allow some space in there. Okay? So let's allow some space. Let me get my quarter note. So we have this. And I say, well, that's not very impressive. I say, oh, no, no, we left that. We, we're not trying to impress anyone. All I'm trying to do is solo. And that was a solo. And I'll tell him, okay, well, now a new rule. Now we need to incorporate dynamics. We need to start getting louder and softer. Because when I talk, I don't just talk in a whisper. Sometimes I'll get real loud, right? So we need to incorporate dynamics. So we, we start building this game, just the same way you built the game with the cheetah. And they're soloing all the time. So if they, if they take the same melodies... To me, that's, that's kind of a nice little thing going there. It's not going to impress you know, anyone, but I'm soloing. I'm learning how to do this. Uh, and once we start uh, developing this little game with them and adding one thing after another, one thing after another, they start to realize that, oh, wow, okay, um, soloing is about a lot more than just impressing someone. And I may say, okay, you don't have to play the melody the same way every time. You can stretch it out or you can play it on different parts of the beat. Oh, okay, well, let me try that, you know. So right there, it's a very simple example, and everybody is like, that's not a very interesting solo. But look, whenever I listen to Miles Davis, he can play one note, and man, he knocks me on my butt. I mean, that guy. He can just, and he, he, he talked about it in his uh, autobiography. He talked about everybody around me was doing this thing. It was fast. Uh, you know, uh, Bop was around, we were at high tempos, and you had these, you know, guys like Coltrane coming in. Um, uh, and, and they're just blowing. And, and there's many others. But Coltrane's solos versus Miles Davis's solos are completely different. And he said, I found myself going up there going, what am I going to do, play more notes? So he took the complete opposite direction. And he said, instead of playing a thousand notes, I'm going to play two. Mm -hmm. And so you'll listen to it. Ba -da, and then he waits. And man, by doing that and exploring that space, when you have somebody, you know, they're going up and down, they're going up and down, and it's like, oh, wow, what am I supposed to do? And oftentimes our, our, our first reaction is you jump in with a bunch of notes too, which is a good, sometimes that works. But oftentimes the best thing to do is do the opposite 
and to do exactly what, you know, he would let it breathe, and then he would let it reset, and then he'd come in with a little something, and he would build from there. Uh, and I think it's a really powerful tool space, you know. So I think that you taking the time to gamify that for someone whose cognitive abilities had not developed to the point that they could do what you were asking them to do, um, and then taking that and placing rules around it are two huge things as a teacher, and I actually don't see a lot of teachers doing them. Uh, so kudos to you. I appreciate you being a good teacher out there and, and trying to, to to get where your student is. I, I remember having a conversation with one of my teachers, and he said one of the challenges that adults have is that adults are too afraid to make a mistake, and children mm -hmm. are excited to explore. Sometimes even with adults, what you need to do is that you need to get the I need to be perfect out of their mindset and allow them just to explore. So there's always different methods and different approaches that you need to take with different age groups and with different personalities and you know introverts, extroverts. Introverts will never ask you questions. You need to have conversations with them. And then through those conversations, you will find out the things that they wanna learn. But if you ask them, do you have any questions? The answer is always no. You know, it's, it's funny. Kids usually don't know that they're coloring outside of the lines until we tell them. Yeah. Um, they didn't know that that was a mistake. And it's only a mistake because we deemed it a mistake. It's only a mistake because we deemed that as an improper way to color. Whereas to them, they thought it looked great until you told them it, it was, you were outside the lines. And then you have a child who becomes obsessed with coloring in the lines, right? Because that's the correct way to do it. But they didn't realize that was a mistake until, um, until someone told them. There was a, 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 another story about Miles Davis um, piano player. He's played with everybody. Um, he played with Miles Davis. Um, gosh, why am I not remembering his name right now? I'll remember it during this story at some point, hopefully. Um, and he, um, he was playing and he said, you know, I'm, I'm playing these chord changes and we're just in the middle of this tune and it's burning, uh, Herbie Hancock. And, uh, and he said, all of a sudden, you know, Miles is up there soloing and he said, all of a sudden I played this chord he said it wasn't anywhere near right. He said it was completely nowhere in the song we were playing and it did not fit at all. And he said it was 100% mistake. I just, you know, which is great to hear somebody like Herbie Hancock say they just, you know, they just took a dive on the stage. And he said, so I'm sitting there and this chord is hanging in the air in what seems like eternity. And he said, all of a sudden, I, hear, I, I see Miles cock his head, and then he played a note that made my chord right. And he said, man, in that moment, I learned so much about music and life from him doing that because he was not looking for a mistake. He wasn't looking. He was looking for ideas and inspiration. He thought I was trying to do something hip. He didn't think I'd made a mistake. He thought I heard something that he wasn't hearing. Mm -hmm. And so when he cocked his head, he was trying to go through his Rolotex and go, wait a second, what did he just hear that I didn't hear? What game's he playing? And then he jumps in with a note that makes it right because Miles assumed he's putting the onus on me to make this correct because he's playing a game and I got it right. It was that type of thing. He wasn't looking for mistakes. And I think if we would spend so much more time not looking for mistakes and uh, or not being so worried about them, you're going to make them. Good luck. Good luck. Like Godspeed, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to go down in a ball of flames 
and you're going to laugh about it later, but you'll probably cry about it today, right? Like, that's just going to happen, you know? I was talking to my son the other day. He, you know, he got in trouble. Kids do that. And and I, I was laughing, and I said, did you really think you were going to be the only 12-year-old that ever got out of being 12 and didn't make a mistake? Like, did you think that was really possible? Because you're definitely not going to do it, you know? <laughs> we're just going to we're gonna be back at this place, and, you know, and it's okay. You know, I told him, I said, it's cool. Like, you'll make mistakes. Let's just avoid the 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 uh, the deadly mistakes like let's let's avoid those mistakes that end everything you know as a business owner i don't want a mistake that closes the doors that's the mistakes that i'm like oh, i don't i don't really want to make those but the little mistakes oh yeah we're gonna make those all the time just enjoy it you know play it twice it's part of the song now i don't have a mistake anymore <laughs> Now, now we just we just improvised, right? We made it part of the tune. And then sometimes the people that are most critical of mistakes that you make are the ones that are oblivious to the ones that they make. Oh, don't get me started on that. But that's a completely different <laughs> conversation. So, one of the other things I've always really admired about you is that you have a great dedication to running a successful business. You have a really good skill for marketing. These are all learned skills that you've definitely put the time in. But despite all of the things that you have going on in your life, the priority you made in your life was to find a good work life family balance. So what are the things that are most important to you? And what are some of the things that you had to adapt in order to find that balance in your life to maintain sanity and that joy? Well, I'm still working on that, Michael. <laughs> so if you figure it out, let me know. Um, no, this is something that I spent a lot of time on. I'm not one of those people that want a lifestyle business where I'm able to jet set. And that's great. I love traveling with my family, by the way. But I also uh, want to wake up with a purpose and a, a passion. And I found that, that, well, a couple of things helped me. So one of them, there's a great study. I've mentioned it a billion times. The, the role of deliberate practice in the acquisition of expert performance. You can look it up online. It's about 40 pages of just a nerd fest. I mean, it's just a nerd fest. I love it. But some of you are going to be like, uh, I don't want to hang out with you. I've literally bored reps from other drum companies that have taken me out, thought it was going to be like good drinks and everything. And then I wind up with another drummer there that knows about myelin. And yep. we're just like geeking out and those guys are like uh okay we're gonna go ahead and wrap up and yeah. see you guys <laughs> i've read um, the talent code so I'm oh well man it's it's such a good book um everybody should go read that one but um what they found a really important finding was that the amount of deliberate practice that a person was able to engage in this is a big this is a big phrase that i sometimes have to repeat twice for people not you but if you're listening just take it in. The amount of deliberate practice that people are in, a, able to engage in is not dependent on how much available time they have to practice. It is dependent on how much time it took them to recover from their last deliberate practice session. And recovery comes in the form of sleep, eating, and recreational activities. And so what they found was that a person's recreational activities in life outside of the practice room was just as much, if not more important than their time inside of the practice room, no matter the skill you're learning. They also found that they did just as much task-related activities, music-related, if we're talking about music, music-related activities as they did practicing sometimes twice as much. This is listening, critical listening, reading about music, all those things, taking classes, those types of things, besides just practice. What this helped me understand in my own life and what I teach, and I, I teach a course called The Art of Practice. Uh, what I teach my students is 
you cannot practice 12 hours a day. I'm sorry, you can't. Maybe you can sit at a drum set 12 hours a day, but you're not gonna be practicing. You know, the, the findings say that after two hours, they've really reached a critical max. At three hours, we've plateaued. At four hours, we're going backwards. And so of deliberate practice, I'm talking about practice where you are in it. They found that the top of the tops in any field practiced five to six days a week, uh, no more than three hours a day. Uh, and that is, now obviously we all go through these incubative gusts where we may, we may be so passionate we're eight, nine, 10 hours a day. Take advantage of those. those that's not the norm, you can't live there. Um, and so uh, you become obsessed, that's an obsession and that's okay for a very short period of time. You'll see a lot of growth from that. And so if the top of the tops are practicing two to three hours a day, allowing for one to two days of rest, getting plenty of sleep, all these things, I start looking at it. And what they found was spending time with family, going on walks, playing basketballs, you know, with friends, um, walking the dog, reading a good book, all of these things contributed to the practice time. I used to have all this practice guilt. I would feel guilty I wasn't practicing. And then when I was practicing, I would feel guilty I wasn't spending time with my wife or guilty I wasn't seeing my kids or et cetera and so forth. And what that study tells us through science is that it's actually really, really important that you go on a date with your, your husband or wife. It's actually really, really important that you walk the dog. It's important for your drumming. Your drumming needs it. it your drumming needs you to go to work. It needs you to go do something else besides the drums because the brain continues working on that task. Even when we sleep, uh, it's, it's fantastic. There's a great book called Why We Sleep. Um, and it goes all into what we do when we sleep and, and that our brain is still learning. The brain is actually encoding stuff, different parts light up, and we're going through the exact same sequence that we went through in our brain at half the speed. Our brain is slowing down the task and being like, okay, let me figure out what this guy was trying to do today. Uh, and so understanding that, I have zero guilt about going on a vacation. I'm planning one, uh, as a matter of fact, an extended one here at the end of the year because I've been touring and running a business and, and lots of other things for this year. And, um, and I'm tired. And I think that understanding that helps us take some pressure off of our playing and helps us understand, okay, I practiced, I put in my time. It's very good for me to sit here and let myself decompress. It's good for me to mow the grass. It's good for me to do these things. So we look at them as rejuvenating things instead of draining things. And we look at our practice as the same thing. It's very good for my daughter if dad spends time with a drum set because this is important to dad and this helps him become a better father because when he doesn't do that, he can kind of be grouchy and feels like he needs to do it. That's a good thing. She has things. Sometimes she wants to play by herself. It's very important she does those things because that'll make our time together better. So I'm all about the quality time and then the other thing is I was all of my, I would judge all of my success or failure on, you know, one thing. And that was how, how is my playing? How, how good is my playing? Where's my playing at? And that depended on how my marriage was doing. That depended on how my outlook for the day. And that was a real unhealthy spot to be in. And so I came up with several pillars that I could look to. So instead of having one thing that told me if I was a success, I had several things that I would look across and make sure that I call them pillars, that all the pillars in my life are rising at the same time. And if one gets too low, I need to go pay some attention to that one because that's an important pillar in my life. Some examples of this are my work life, my musical life, uh, my relationship with my kids, my relationship with my wife, my friends, um, income generation would be another one. My faith, all of these are pillars in my life. They're very important to me. And 
if my playing is on a high and I'm playing all these venues I've never thought in front of, oh, you know, thousands of people and I can't believe who all came to see me, 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 but my marriage is in the tank, well, I'm not a very successful person in my book, in my book. Uh, whereas if my marriage is on a huge high and I don't have enough money to pay for the mortgage, well, I don't think I'm a very successful person because part of my job as we've laid it down in our marriage is that I'm the provider so she can stay home and homeschool the kids and, and, and be the parent at home. And everybody's home life looks different. If I have a fantastic playing life and I'm making all the money in the world, but I don't know my children, this is not a very good situation for me. It's not sustainable. Um, if, if my marriage is successful and I'm making tons of money, but my faith is in shambles, this isn't you see what i'm saying so what it does is it allows me any day to point to a couple things at least like okay i'm getting that right <laughs> this is this is a burning heap of trash right here and i'm gonna gotta do something with this dog turd but <laughs> this other thing i'm i'm doing okay yeah. um and and i think that's been been huge for me to to keep myself in check is um how am i doing on on all my all the different pillars that i've set up in my life um, how's my stress levels? I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to those. Um, even though sometimes we go through stressful, stressful times, uh, I think all of those help us to, um, help to make us more successful people. I also think we need a purpose in life. And I think that we need to, I don't separate my work and my creative life from my family. It's just all these people are like, oh, your work doesn't never need to come home. And I, you know what? I'm pretty sure that pays for everything we do. So probably sometimes it's going to come home and my kids should see me leave for work and they should see me wave and they should be happy when I come home and I should be happy to see them, but I'm happy to go to work too. So I think that, you know, life is a lot more interrelated then we try to then we we try to segment these things, and it's like no 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 you know it's okay my kids hear about work it's okay that we talk about it at dinner I want to hear about their school you know um, uh, so but that it took me a long time it took me a long time and that was one of the major things for me coming off the road years ago uh, and trying to turn this ship was I really started looking at okay you know what I could be the most successful drummer in the world which there's no measure for that so let's all just stop trying to do that and um, I I could be that person whatever that person is and if i don't know this baby that's in my wife's you know belly then i don't think i'm going to be uh, very happy about that i think i need to figure out some way to uh to make those get along those things get along in life so i don't know if that's an answer but it's a very wondering meandering <laughs> me no, thinking I, through things I, I think that is um an incredible perspective and something that I also try and value in my life. Life's always changing. There's always these different challenges, but I think sometimes we get so caught into one direction, we forget about the things that are important. And it's really just about trying to find that balance and the relationship with our family and our friends and ourselves is really essential. I often find for me, the one thing I tend to neglect in my life is myself. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've had to learn now to not try and cross everything off my list so that I can then make time to pursue the things that bring me joy. I had to just reschedule things. So it's it's definitely something that's that's uh, always constantly changing and reevaluating, but I think that's a great perspective. So I think this is a great place to end here. Now, if people want to find out more about you or to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, yeah, so they can go to my website, stevensdrumshed.com. Um, they can also look me up on YouTube. Uh, just type in Steven Taylor drums or drum lessons. 
Uh, you spell my name with a PH, by the way. Um, and um, if you want to, if you want to talk by email, you can email help at stevensdrumshed.com. I still answer all my, e- which people are very surprised I answer my email. I never do understand that. I really do answer all my emails if I get them. Um, and uh, so, yeah, if you email me, you're going to hear from me and not somebody else. And I promise I won't put it in the trash. <laughs> I'll, I'll actually answer you. Um, but yeah, those are the best places uh, to, to, to find me and kind of connect with me. It's been an absolute pleasure to actually get a chance to connect with you in person. As I had said earlier, I've listened to every episode of your podcast and I've been following your career for years. So I feel like we've already kind of know each other, but this is the first time that we actually had a chance to meet. So um, I really appreciate your time and I look forward to all of the other things that you have coming up and hopefully at some point getting a chance to meet you in person. So it's been a pleasure. Oh, for sure. Well, I I appreciate you having me and I appreciate you being a teacher that cares. That means a lot to me. So uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. All the best to you and your family. You too, Michael. Take care. You've been listening to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. Please share and subscribe, get the word out, and let's keep the discussion going. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.